0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Watership Down, class number five. Um, I am excited to finish up uh, book two here. A couple things from book one. No, no, not from book one. All of this from book two. Um, and then uh, get to several of your questions. I got a, a bunch of really, uh, really interesting emails that I'm hoping to be able to share with you. So uh, let's get right to it. One quick uh, announcement first. First. Um, don't forget, I've talked about it, um, a couple times before, but don't forget that the deadline for registration for MythMoot is now actually beginning to approach, largely because MythMoot itself is beginning to approach January 10th and 11th in Baltimore, um... So if uh, you've never been to a myth moot before, you really should come. Uh, it, is, uh, it is just the coolest thing. If you've never been to a scholarly conference before, this is the coolest scholarly conference you'll ever go to. Uh, if you have, it's way cooler than most of the ones you've been to. And, uh, and it's just a, a wonderful time to get together and have fun, uh, as well as like, really interesting, stimulating discussion uh, with a bunch of really like-minded people. Uh, about the stuff you love most so um it's uh it's going to be great yeah we're looking we're for those of you who were there last year, uh, I think we may have up to like fifty percent more people than last year. Uh, when all is said and done, we're 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 aiming we're moving that way. Um, so it should be really fun. I'm really excited. Um, it's at the the BWI Marriott uh, near the BWI Airport, so it's really easy to get to. Um, the deadlines I was I was uh, told to remind you of. Um, the registration deadline is December 31st. That's our cut off for when we really need to have firm numbers uh, for the Marriott for how many people are attending, so if you're going to register, you need to register by then. Um, if you want, we also have a special room rate at the Marriott for people who are staying there at the hotel, and um, uh, and to, re- to, to be able to get the special rate on the room, you have to register for your room, you have to uh, reserve your room by the 19th of December, so those are the deadlines that I was told to remind you guys of, um, so uh, anyway, I certainly hope that a lot of you can come. I'm really looking forward, to, there are several uh, papers that have come from, you know, there's uh, a few times uh, in uh, our Mythgard Academy classes where I have uh, sort of challenged you guys to, to sort of write particular papers or, or develop certain arguments that we don't have time to cover or questions I can't answer or something like that. And there are actually uh, a few things that either have come out of thoughts that people have had or sort of challenges that I've delivered and people are going to actually deliver uh, papers on those things at MythMood. I'm really psyched about it. So anyway, um, uh, I just wanted to make sure that you knew about that. Again, it's January tenth and eleventh. It's a Saturday. It's a Saturday and Sunday in January, and um, we're going to be. There's there's nothing officially scheduled on Friday night. Uh, it's going to be. Uh, um, it's going to be a. Um, uh sort of an informal gathering we're probably going to go see uh the you know a bunch of us are probably going to go see the the third hobbit movie together and uh and we'll then we'll, we'll get together to sort of chat and hang out um and then the conference starts officially on saturday morning um yeah good good um okay let's see uh hope okay casks uh will uh the conference attendees be breakfasting together, or you're on your, you're on your own in the mornings. I, pretty much, I think there might be some refreshments or something, but it, it's you're, you're mostly going to be uh, on your own. Mandatory breakfasts can be brutal. Um, yeah, good. Oh, yeah, uh, Connor, uh, uh, is it y- y- Yeatman or Yeatman? Do you pronounce it like the? Do, do, is your last name pronounced like the poet, or like how the poet last name looks like it should be pronounced? Uh, anyway, Connor uh, asks, "How many things in uh, Fiverr's dream have come to pass so far?" Uh, that's a good question. I didn't uh, put that passage up, um, so let's uh, let me actually just go answer that here. Um, Let's see. It's the first paragraph, or the first page of chapter two. Let's see. He says, we were sitting on water, going down a great deep stream. So sitting on water, Fiverr sitting on water has happened, but I think that's not what he's referring to. Uh, And then I realized we were on a board, like that board in the field, all white and covered with black lines. We've now seen the second reference to that. Um, So that connection with Fiverr's uh, later dream and his rescuing of Hazel is interesting. Uh, there were other rabbits there, bucks and does. But when I looked down, I saw the board was all made of bones and wire. Uh, reference to the to the uh, to F- uh, cowslips Warren, and I screamed. And you said, "Swim, everybody, swim!" That's the one that has that happened when they crossed the endborn And then I was looking for you everywhere and trying to drag you out of a hole in the bank, which has also happened there at the end of book two, I found you but you said the chief rabbit must go alone, and you floated away down a dark tunnel of water okay, so uh, I, so Connor as for how many things have come to pass so far? about half um, th- so far we've got the swimming of the enborn um, a reference to the warn of the snares a reference to uh, you know a, a foreshadowing of <clears throat> Fiver's finding of hazel um, in the hole in the bank um so uh so we're getting there I'm going to you know we'll 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 come back to it again um in our last class, well penultimate quiz um uh when we finished reading uh the whole book and sort of see how these things all sort of fit together um but uh, but yeah I guess we're about halfway I guess there um yeah uh let's see Arthur Harrow is uh, interested to compare Bigwig and Woundwort. Uh, wait for it, Arthur. We'll definitely get to that. Um, that will be a topic of conversation uh, certainly for uh, uh, for books three and four. Uh, we'll we'll definitely. definitely get there. Anyway, I want to go back um, because the topic I didn't get to uh, last time, as you may remember I mentioned at the end of last time, was the prophecy stuff that, you know, I've been wanting to focus on uh, Fiverr's prophetic visions and really trying to understand how that is and what that works. Um, And one of the primary ways in which I'm wanting to do this is trying to sort of get inside you know the rabbit secondary world that we're being given. You know, we've talked about that on a few different, uh, a few different, uh, uh, in, a, in a few different ways. Trying to understand, um, you know, the things I want to talk about here at the beginning of class tonight are things like how well can we really begin to understand things like rabbit mythology, rabbit metaphysics. Um, you know, as we're sort of seeing it here, how do fibers? dreams and insights work. So let's look at some of the new data that we've gotten on this question here uh, in book two. Um, this is at the end of the reading for class number three when Kehar goes out for the first time on his, uh, uh, reco- his first reconnaissance flight. As far as he was able, this is Hazel, of course, he kept his anxiety to himself. But one day when they were alone, he asked Fiver whether he thought Kehar would return. He will return, said Fiverr unhesitatingly. And what will he bring with him? How can I tell, replied Fiverr. But later, when they were underground, silent and drowsy, he said suddenly, The gifts of El trickery, great danger, and blessing for the warren. When Hazel questioned him again, he seemed to be unaware that he had spoken, and could add nothing more. Okay. um, So... I I find this a really fascinating passage. We can see a couple things here, right? First, notice how this comes and goes, right? Not just the fact that he gets this prophetic insight later on in the night and didn't have it in the afternoon. I don't just mean that. I mean, like, in the course of that little conversation, right? You know, I think that the way in which... Hazel, you know, gets like a kind of whiplash from that first conversation is pretty telling, right? Um he asks you know he asks Fiverr's opinion, as we're told he's wont to do, right? You know, he's he's used to relying on Fiverr's insight on these things. So we ask him, Do you think he'll return? And unhesitatingly Fiverr says, He will return. Right? Not like yeah, I think so, right? So, uh, you know, we we were looking last time at the difference between Fiverr speaking as brother and counselor and Fiverr speaking as prophet, right? Um, and uh, here uh, uh, he seems to be, you know, he will return unhesitatingly. Sounds like I'm speaking as prophet, not as counselor, right? And what will he bring with him, says Hazel. So Hazel very understandably, right? Wants to press a little bit further, right? If you've been granted some kind of insight, if you are certain about his return, are you certain about anything else? Is there anything else you can tell me about what's coming down the pipe? And Fiver's reply: How can I tell? It's, it's as you know, Kay was just saying. Uh, Let's see. How can you tell? Because you're prophetic, right? But the, but isn't that such a such a telling question from Fiverr? right? The fact that Fiverr would say that. How can I tell, right? Um. It's not like he's like, what prophetic me? No. I mean, it's not, it's not false modesty. It's not like he's completely multiple personality, but it's clear that, uh, you know, whatever surety he had five seconds before, he doesn't have now, or certainly doesn't feel kind of broadly. Um, but again, the question, how can I tell? How am I supposed to know? Fiverr doesn't know the answer to that question, I think. How can I tell? Right? How can I tell? I don't know. How could I just? How was it that I was able to tell you what I just did? I don't know. But I don't have that. Right? So, and again, so one of the things that I think we see here is the limitation of his vision. Right? He 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 can't see everything. He's talked about this before, Um, and again, it can it it kind of comes and goes like that. Later that night, it comes and goes in a flash too, and it seems to be unconscious. He's not even aware of the fact that he's spoken. Right? This in, the, in this moment, we seem to have Fiverr as merely the instrument. And to some extent, we've seen that already. I mean, this comes upon him. He speaks of it not as a thing that he does, right? It's Fiverr's prophecy is not like a talent that he has. It's not like Blackberry's brains or Bigwig's strength, right? It's, it's grouped in there. Remember that the, that that group of four, right, of uh, Blackberry's brains and Bigwig's strength and Hazel's leadership and Fiverr's insight, right, that... Um, you know, we looked at that passage at the beginning of Book 2 about how all four of those things were clearly established through the course of Book 1. But there's like a, which of these things is not like the other situation in a sense with those four things, right? Because three of those things are attributes of those rabbits, right? Hazel has the attribute of good leadership. Blackberry has brains. Bigwig has strength. Fiverr doesn't have... Insight in the same sense, right um, insight happens to him, which is which is a very different kind of thing, um, and we've already seen that, but this is a pretty dramatic. Um, uh, instance of it um i can't remember another time uh in this <laughs> curt says in pipkin's adorableness uh yes 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 that that's true uh the cuteness of pipkin uh, might also perhaps is, is also perhaps established without question by the end of book one um but um but anyway so uh, it, it's it's it, we've seen it just come upon him without him really drawing on it. Um this is I, the first time that I can recall that he like, didn't even remember that he had spoken. Um but but again it's it's certainly not out of character, but again it certainly emphasizes the fact that he is a kind of passive instrument of this. And now looking at the focusing on what he's on, on the context of what he's saying here. Um this sounds like... Doesn't this sound like a message for Hazel? Not a declaration to the whole Warren, right? This is not a public prophecy. This seems to be an answer to the question. It's even framed syntactically as an answer to Hazel's question. And what will Kehar bring with him when he returns, right? To which Fiver said, how can I tell? All the, well, the answer to his question, how can I tell, is... I can tell when, you know, the prophetic fit comes over me, uh, and someone speaks through my mouth, um, the answer to that question. Um, and especially with the invocation of El Ahreira at the beginning of that message, it's almost like Fiverr is being used as the instrument of a message to Hazel, as chief rabbit of the warren, right? Um, you know, like it's it's like a private message uh, to 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 Hazel, um, and um, that I think is really interesting. Um, and now the actual sub, the actual content of the answer: the gifts of Elaherah. That's the simple answer to the question: What will he bring with him? He will bring with him the gifts of Elaherah. What are those? Trickery, great danger, and blessing for the Warren. Um and uh Karita had been asking before, is great danger a gift? Um well says it is, right? I think, Karita, it's really important that those that, that is sandwiched between the other two. Trickery and blessing for the Warren, right? Um uh, you know, when when great danger is there, uh, you know, you've got uh trickery and trickery going in and blessing for the warren coming out. Um, but but to, to to another extent, I think it's I, I think it is, in a sense, one of the gifts of El Herrera, right? That is to say the sense in which I think Great Danger is a gift of El Herrera is I don't know. I don't know how to say it exactly. It's like on the one hand, Hazel... Great danger is coming, but that's not a warning. I'm not like saying, "Be careful, lest great danger come upon you." Right? That's not the message. The message is, you are going to receive a gift, great danger, and trickery, and blessing for the Warren. These three things all go together, right? This is the life of Elahera. This is the gift of Elahera. Uh, uh, great danger is part of the life of Elahera. Um, you know, if you are not living in great danger, um, you're not really living the true rabbit life. <laughs> um, again, I think it's one of the things, think here, and we didn't spend much time talking about this, it was certainly something we could have talked about. The, uh, you know, we, 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 we've spent some time looking at sort of rabbit culture. Right? And the way in which the stories of Ella Herrera in particular serve as sort of touchstones for sort of essential rabbit culture. Um, think of the hutch rabbits, right? And the, the sort of point of contrast that they serve, right? The life of the hutch rabbits um, no danger, right? A little bit of nervousness, right? Like the cats come and freak them out sometimes, but the cats can't get them, and they know the cats can't get them, right, when they're safely in the hutch, right? So their life is safe, but dull um they're not living a life full of the gifts of El um not only because they have like their 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 capacity for trickery has atrophied um but because they they live in no danger right i mean that's that's part of that's part of the thing right um so Anyway, so I, I do think that those three things go together, and they are, in a sense, all the gifts of Elehera. So is this a warning of what's to come? Yes, in a sense, but, uh, you know, um, it's it's a warning and uh, and a blessing simultaneously. Um, uh, but anyway, I, Fiverr as the unknowing instrument um, of this uh is is thinking about looking at that seems uh, seems seems pretty clear. Um, oh, good. Thomas Johnson is recalling another passage that I had forgotten. Um, when oh, that's right. When uh, uh, Hazel and Fiverr are looking out at the. Uh, at the down on, on on the common yes yes you're right um back in book 1 when they're in the and they're looking and they're seeing the hills and he's saying that w- that they should go to the hills and he's talking about um about what it's like up on the hills and and you know this sort of he's been kind of given this this sort of vision of of what it's like to be on the hills and then you're right thomas at the end of that fiver asks says what, what what was i saying right he, he doesn't recall what he was saying um he does seem to be at least aware of the fact that he was talking right so even, this is even a little bit more extreme than that, but you're right we did have that same uh, um, that same pattern before um, yeah karita asks about uh, Ephra with the in connection with the hutch rabbits yeah I mean again I, I think that that's one of the things that we um, one of the things that we see we you know, we're thinking about the the things that Holly said about Efrapha that we were looking at at the end of class last time, and uh, uh, you know Dandelion's question, doesn't it alter them very much? Well, yeah. One of the ways it alters them um, is uh, they 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 no longer that is the average rabbit uh, in Efrapha no longer has uh, those blessings um, uh, to to some extent. Um, okay. Um, Next one. I want to. I want to. I'm trying to hustle along because I want to get through these and get to questions today. So, um, and and this is again. I'm. Well, I'm still. You know, we're still only halfway through the book, so I'm still largely in data gathering mode here about uh, about Fiver's prophecies and um, sort of the whole thing. I'll talk later about how I'm having a hard time with vocabulary uh, here, but um, um, but anyway. Uh, okay, uh, the next is when uh, um, they come back to report Hazel's death. Um Fiver, he said, there's bad news. Hazel, I know, replied Fiver. I know now. How do you know? asked Blackberry, startled. As you came through the grass just now, said Fiverr, very low, there was a fourth rabbit behind you, lim- limping and covered with blood. I ran to see who it was, and then there were only three of you, side by side. He paused and looked across the down, as though still seeking the bleeding rabbit who had vanished in the half-light. Then, as Blackberry said nothing more, he asked, Do you know what happened? Um... And I believe... The, the pronouns are a little bit unclear. I believe that's Fiver asking Blackberry, Do you know what happened? Because, as I recall, Blackberry then goes on to tell him the story. Um. Okay. Um, so... Notice the gap here between seeing and understanding. In the previous passage, we saw Fiverr as entirely unconscious vehicle or instrument of the prophetic declaration. Here, we can actually see Fiverr's conscious mind interacting with these... unconscious? That's a weighted word when sort of thinking about psychological things like this, but... um, uh, but anyway, Fiverr's non-conscious, perhaps I will use that slightly more neutral word. Um, uh, that is to say, I, I, I'm, of course, I, it, it, uh, let me not be cryptic, I'm, I'm, I'm not eager to use the word unconscious because that might perhaps imply that it comes from these messages come from Fiverr's own unconscious in a Freudian sense, and I don't mean to imply that, so that's why I'm not wanting to use that. Um, but anyway... Um, we see Fiverr interacting with it, right? Uh, you know, his statement, I know, replied Fiver. I know now. I know now. I didn't know a minute ago. right? It wasn't until Blackberry said there's bad news, Hazel, that Fiverr says, now I get it. He saw it before, but he didn't get it. And he describes what he saw. He saw a fourth rabbit behind them limping and covered with blood. He didn't know who it was, he didn't know what it meant. He mistook it for actual physical sight, right? He thought there was actually a fourth rabbit with them and was coming over to say like, "Hey, who's that fourth rabbit?" Um, and uh, you know, like, "Can we help?" Um, but then the fourth rabbit disappears. And he sa- and so he gains insight, here I am using that word ambiguously again. He gains he gains understanding. Let me say that more carefully. He gains understanding, conscious understanding of the significance of the vision that he just had. Of course, in the same moment, realizing A, that was a vision I just saw, right? And B, I comprehend what that vision means, right? So here it is as if the vision that he has been shown, the vision of the bleeding rabbit, is actually a message to him, whereas in the previous time, it was a message to Hazel. Like, you know, Fiverr's on a need-to-know basis, and he didn't need to know um, about the gifts of El Herrera, right? Hazel needed to know that, Fiverr didn't need to know that. This vision of the bloody rabbit is a message to Fiverr, whereas the vision of the bloody field back at the Sandalford Warren um, is a message to Fiverr, but it's one that he's supposed to transmit, it's a message for the whole Warren, but it's not just, you know, again, using Fiverr um, uh, passively. Um, he did understand it, right? That is, he didn't see exactly what it was, but he comprehended the fact that his vision of the field of blood meant that um, a, a bad thing was coming. Something that was very, very bad. Right? He, he, he couldn't articulate it too well, but he he, he knew at least that much. Here he knows now too. Um, okay, but we also again see the limitations of the vision. Um, Blackberry says nothing more. Now, Blackberry, I take this I, I take this to mean that Blackberry assumes that like his story is irrelevant. Like, right? I mean that Blackberry seems to be like, oh, okay, I don't have to tell Fiver. Fiverr apparently already knows everything that happened, even though he wasn't there. right? So the fact that Fiverr has to say, do you know what happened? Um, implying, because I don't. Why don't you tell me, right? And Blackberry does, in fact, have to tell him the whole story, um, and um, I, I, you know, so so again, there there clearly there are limitations of the vision. He you know he knows, but he doesn't know everything. Um, this leads to one of the things that I think is. Uh, I, I think this is sort of a turning point. Certainly something... Um... Well... I was going to call it unique. Maybe it's not completely unique. Um, I'm talking about the follow-up to this. The Fiverr Beyond chapter. Um, this is... So Hazel Fiverr goes to bed right after this. You know, he, go, he goes... Well, not to bed. He goes goes into his burrow. He doesn't have a bed. Um, he goes into his burrow and goes to sleep. Um each time he woke he remembered the loss of hazel and suffered once more the knowledge that had pierced him as the shadowy limping rabbit disappeared in the first light of morning on the down okay suffered once more the i love the word suffered suffered once more the knowledge of course it's it's a it's a beautiful word choice because of course it invokes his emotional suffering right he is suffering from this knowledge he is suffering because of this knowledge but at the same time he is also suffering the knowledge um, in the sort of classic sense, sort of the pure sense of that word. The word suffer means to have something happen to you. Um, This is why for those of you um, who have ever heard the King James might remember the famous passage where... um, People are bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples are trying to keep the children away from you know. They're like, you know, keep your snotty-nosed brats away. uh, And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. And then what he says in the King James is, "Suffer the little children to come to me." Um, That is to say, let it happen, right? Let them come. Um, But in the old, you know, the the old sense of the word "suffer," the you know, seventeenth century and earlier sense of the word "suffer" means to permit something to ha- to to become the passive recipient of an action is what "suffer" means. Um, this is why the word "suffer" has come to mean what it does—that is, to experience grief. Because the idea is that when you are sad, when you are grieving. Your passions, your feelings, are doing things to you, and you're suffering it. You're not. You're not the doer. You're not. You're not the agent. You are the patient. You are the sufferer. Um, by the way, this is what uh, um, this, this thinking also of uh, uh, old usage of English words uh, in similar con uh, in similar ways. This is also why the. Uh, um, the crucifixion of Jesus is traditionally called the Passion of Christ. Um, it's not about him feeling very passionate emotions. Uh, passion means suffering. Um, it's just the Greek version. Um, so uh, the the Passion of the Christ means Christ permitting himself to undergo the tortures of the cross. Um, so again, that's what that's what the Passion. Means again, it's it's the same sense, the same word. To be, uh, it comes from the same word that the word patient or patience comes from to permit things to happen. Anyway, um, so I love that 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 word usage. It gets both the modern and the old sense of suffer. He re- each time he woke, he remembered the loss of Hazel and suffered once more. The knowledge, the knowledge again happens to him that had pierced him. So he is once again pierced. Uh, It's like the Passion, right? Once again pierced um, by the knowledge uh, that had pierced him before as the shadowy limping rabbit disappeared in the first light of the morning on the down. Where was that rabbit now? Where had it gone? He began to follow it among the tangled paths of his own thoughts, over the cold, dew-wet ridge and down into the dawn mist of the fields below. The mist swirled round Fiverr as he crept through thistles and nettles. Now he could no longer see the limping rabbit ahead. He was alone and afraid, yet perceiving old familiar sounds and smells, those of the field where he was born. The thick weeds of summer were gone. He was under the bare ash boughs and the flowering blackthorn of March. This is a remarkable passage because we see here Fiverr emphatically not being the passive instrument of vision right we see him doggedly pursuing vision um, as he is tracking down through the tangled paths of his own thoughts um, uh, that's um, I'm not sure what to make of that, of his own thoughts. Um, Of the thoughts like the knowledge that had pierced him, is this are we supposed to be reading this as a continuation of what we got there briefly in that exchange with Blackberry? That is, his conscious mind wrestling to comprehend the you know, the, the, the knowledge that had pierced him? Um... To understand what it is, and what it really means. Um, is he actually traveling? Even the question, that last sentence in the first paragraph there, he began to follow it, the, that is the rabbit, among the tangled paths of his own thoughts, over the cold, duet ridge, and down into the dawn mist of the fields below. So the dreamscape, of course, is the down. Right? It's, he's going down the slope of Watership Down. Well, I was, I was doing this down the slope, but no. He's going down the slope of Watership Down and, uh, and, then, and down into the field. Into the dawn mist of the field below. But it's... In the context, it's hard for me not to see that as a sort of an allegorical thing. Right? Um, though it's interesting that it's a descent and not an ascent. Right? He's not ascending up to a new level. He's descending down um, to a new level and returning in his vision he returns to the Sandalford Warrant um, you know the old familiar sounds and smells of the field where he was born um, Nancy you're right and I was thinking the same thing we have seen this the mist swirling we've seen that um, uh, as Nancy says as a metaphor for unclear visions before remember uh Fiverr saying that the uh, this you know, first he says that the ceiling, you know, the roof of the of the great burrow in Cowslips Warren is made of bones, and then he says, No, it's not made of bones, it's made of mist. Um it's uh you know, it's 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 this mist of confusion and um bewilderment. Um remember that metaphor that he used I guess it was a simile technically about himself in Silverweed, right? Like there were two clouds that were coming together and then he drifted wide um, so this idea of mist is something you know, so him crawling down through the mist, the dawn mist mind, the light is coming, the sun is coming up, um and he ends up in this dream, um this dream landscape Carita, your question is exactly my question Carita says Fiverrs traveling in his mind is this an inspired dream or him figuring out what he's already received don't know it sounds like an inspired dream that is well let's uh, let's let's keep going let's look at that um, it's not <clears throat> it's not the whole dream um, but this is a uh, p- part anyway of his conversation with the workman the human that he meets in his dream um i well that's where it is see said the man and i've got to hang him up here on to to hang him up on this ere board that is to say soon as i get it stood up proper same as you'd hang up a jay like or old stoat ah gonna hang him up no cried fiver no you shan't only i ain't got him see went on the man that's why I can't get done. I can't hang him up, because he's gone down the bloody hole. That's where he's gone. He's gone down the bloody hole just when I'd gotten lined and all, and I can't get him out. Fiverr crept up to the man's boots and peered into the hole. By the way, I apologize. Um, one thing I absolutely am deplorable at is regional accents. I can't really do, like, an English accent to save my life, so I don't really try. Um, I do try to read it as it is there. Um, and actually, I think the accent of the man... Um, first of all, I think that the, the uh, you know, as I've said before, whether it's thrushes or or uh, or um, y- uh, or uh, you know, uh, Berkshire r- uh, natives, um, Adams does such a wonderful job of representing sound uh, in his uh, in his spelling. I, I think it's he d- he does fantastic with that. Um, but uh, uh, but but I actually think the accent of the of the man in this passage, is a really important piece of evidence, uh, Carita, when we're trying to answer the question that you were asking. Fiverr crept up to the man's boots and peered into the hole. It was a cir- It was circular, a cylinder of baked earthenware that disappeared vertically into the ground. He called, Hazel! Hazel! Far down in the hole, something moved, and he was about to call again. Then the man bent down and hit him between the ears. Um. Okay. So again, Karita's excellent question. Is Fiverr traveling in his mind or is this an inspired dream? Is he figuring out what he's already received or is he receiving something new? That's that's the question and an excellent question. Okay. What do we see? What evidence do we get here? Well one, notice on the one hand it has some of the markers of a of a regular dream like a like a sort of a you know it acts kind of like a dream uh, in particular the end when the man bends down and hits him between the ears um, he actually it has a, a, a big clot of dirt like part of the ceiling caves in and hits him in the head so that correspondence between something that happens to his actual wake you know body and something that happens in his dream I think we've all had that kind of experience right where uh you know, you, you experience some kind of sensation in a dream, uh, and, uh, you know, wake up to find that something that was happening to your body in the dream corresponds to like, uh, you know, like, like, uh, um, like I once, uh, I once had a dream where my hand was cut off and I woke up and like my hand had gone completely numb. I couldn't feel it at all. Um, for instance, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, so we, he seems to have that experience there. Um, at the end of um, at the end of his dream, which which makes it sound like it's a dream. I mean, that's like a that's like a, 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 a ooh, I get to use one of my favorite words. That is a verisimilitudinous dreaming touch, right? But notice what else we see in this dream. Um, in other sense, in other ways, this dream. There are some ways in which this dream is merely unlikely. That is merely strange. Um, uh, 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 Corita mentions that she would expect the human to be scarier. It is a little odd, isn't it, that uh, uh, that the human I- is so cordial with him here, right? Even though he's cordially talking about doing horrible things, um, nevertheless he's not uh, he's not particularly terrifying. But the thing that really strikes me is, which seems to me to prove uh pretty emphatically that there is a revelation in this dream is through this dream the man in the dream reveals things to Fiverr that he could not possibly know. This cannot this dream cannot merely be a product of Fiverr's unconscious. It can't be. First of all, the accent Yes they speak in this accent, but they don't understand the words like he's conversing with this with this man who is speaking in this accent, right? And Fiverr is understanding him, right? But the accent he's speaking in is, in fact, the accent that that man speaks in, but Fiverr would have no way of knowing that, right? There's, I mean, I, 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 he can hear, you know, Kehar speaks in a funny accent because he's speaking with a beak, right? Um, and, you know, and because his vocal cords are designed to yell, you know, to, to, to shriek, um, rather than to converse in a quiet and polite voice, right? So uh, his voice, his his voice tends to be explosive, uh, and he has trouble with a whole bunch of his consonants because, hey, no lips. Um, but that's not what we're getting with a man, right? That is to say, there's no comparable gap between human and rabbit. That is leading to that. That's that's rather his human regional accent, which is somehow being translated into lapine, and there's no way that Fiverr could possibly know that. Um, so that's an interesting, one really interesting thing. Secondly, the bit that we didn't, that I didn't quote, um, what uh, what came before there, right? Um, that is the the business about you know when he says. Uh, uh, when, when he talks, when, when the, the man makes a reference to what the board says, and Fiverr says, asks the very sensible rabbit question, how can a board say anything? Boards don't talk. Because he doesn't understand what writing is and what it does. Why should he? How could he understand that? Right? And yet, the man in his dream explains to him, right? Says, see, this is why we're better than you. This is why we can kill you whenever we want to, because we know things you don't. Yeah, no, he don't know that. That's why he couldn't possibly dream it if, uh, uh, if it were not a revelation of some kind, right? So, um, so again, I think that's, that this is, to me, really uh, um, clear evidence that although his mind is involved and his dream state is definitely involved, and he set out to find the rabbit and has tracked him down by his own efforts. Um, where he has ended up on his little journey there through the mist that we had described earlier on, he has ended somewhere else where he is accessing information which is certainly outside his own mind, outside his own unconscious in the Freudian sense. Um, uh, so... If there's this source of information which is speaking through Fiverr sometimes providing him visions, piercing him with knowledge at sometimes um here we have seen Fiverr go after it now earlier on, I was about to call this you know the first time we've ever you know a, a unique example of Fiverr voluntarily sort of entering that world and seeking it not quite because remember he was almost in that state we didn't get the full description and everything but back in the warn of the snares right that that's you know with him trying to trying to bite the bark of the tree with the wire being in the way remember that um, now there again I think I think that that wasn't the same it's not the same kind of situation um, uh That, I think, was another example of Fiverr's conscious mind trying to grapple, trying to understand um, uh, what his vision meant, right? Trying to to comprehend the vision that he was given. And there, I think his explosive, long run-on paragraph um, story of the Warren of the Snares uh, is a much more excited and lengthy version of I know. I know now, right? That is, that was the moment when it all clicks together. Um, not because he's received a new vision, but that's the moment where his conscious mind finally puts together every... Because Fiverr's pretty smart. Uh, that is, I mean, his, his 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 brain apparatus is not quite BlackBerry level, but it's, it's closer to BlackBerry than anybody else in the Warren. Um, we've been told that and shown that on a few different occasions. Um, he was the one who saw, who, who was the only one who understood at first You know, when, about the wood, remember about the the boat um, floating across the Endborn? It was Fiverr who said, oh yes, I see, right? Um, I, so anyway, Fiverr's really smart. Um, and that was the moment where he finally, with his smart, conscious mind, puts together everything when he finally bites the bark and now figures out what he's been shown and what they've observed and can tell the whole story. Um, but there was also that sense of him waiting for some insight, waiting a little more actively, uh, maybe more impatiently, I don't know, but him kind of grasping more at, at something, trying to trying to not only comprehend it, but even sort of trying to receive more of it. Um, so... That's kind of a parallel, but it was still, I think, nothing like this. I am setting out to pursue that bleeding rabbit that I saw in a vision before. I'm going to chase down this vision and try to understand it. Um, But um, okay, um, all right. Let me uh, let me let me keep going here. Um, The outcome, the application. Of the Vision The Elms were still. There was not the least sound in the leaves. The ditch was thick with cow parsley, hemlock, and long trails of gleam of green flowering bryony. Blackberry led the way to the trampled patch of nettles, and Fiver sat still among them, sniffing and looking about him in the silence. Blackberry watched him disconsolately. A faint breath of wind stole across the fields, and a blackbird began to sing from somewhere beyond the elms. At last, Fiver began to move along the bottom of the ditch. The insects buzzed round his ears, and suddenly a little cloud of flies flew up, disturbed from a projecting stone. No, not a stone. It was smooth and regular, a circular lip of earthenware, the, ma- the brown mouth of a drain, stained black at the lower edge by a thin, dried thread of blood, of rabbit's blood. "'The bloody hole,' whispered Fiverr. "'The bloody hole!' He peered into the dark opening. It was blocked, blocked by a rabbit. That was plain to be smelled. A rabbit whose faint pulse could just be heard, magnified in the confined tunnel. Hazel? said "Fiver." Blackberry was beside him at once. What is it, Fiverr? Hazel's in that hole, said Fiverr. And he's alive. Um... Yeah, Kay is just saying the same thing. Uh... I don't even have words to describe how much I love the way Adams takes the throwaway epithet in the mouth of the man in Fiverr's vision. He's gone down the bloody hole, right? That's just what a rustic British person uh, of the early early 20th century would say, right? He just means it as a curse word. He's gone down the bloody hole, and I can't get him out. Um, uh, But Fiverr receives that, and in fact it turns out to be prophetic truth. Right? Um, The bloody hole. The bloody hole. Um, I can't even describe... uh, I can't even describe that. It's one of the moments in this book where I could I just sort of sit and just relish and savor that turn, that connection. Um, that transformation of the bloody hole and the literalization of that word. It's so awesome. I just I just love that. Um, I and uh and look, as uh, Kay was talking about, and uh you know Karita uh, mentioning some things too, the way that he brings the way that his descriptions um bring us into the rabbit point of view. one of the things I find um almost everyone I've ever spoken to who has read this book or attempted to read this book and didn't like it um the one thing I find they all have in common. Is resistance to the secondary world. That is, they have been imaginatively resistant to see the world from the rabbit's perspective. Um, not making that jump. Like that description. Oh, I think, uh, you know, not that this particular passage came up, but one of the things that people have said is like, it's really boring. I mean, there's these long descriptions of plants, who cares? Um, rabbits, that's who cares. <laughs> Uh, the descriptions that we get, this is not just like filler. Um, you know, the ditch was thick with cow parsley, hemlock, and long trails of green, green flowering bryony. The observation that, uh, that Carita was making about how wonderful um, uh, the phrase plain to be smelled is, right? That was plain to be smelled, right? Um, a phrase that would never occur to a human. Uh, to, to To say, um, but again, this whole thing is is uh, you know Kay was pointing out earlier the way that um, he really brings us into the sensory experience of the rabbit you know we we get all this emphasis on plants. Both because they're down a few inches off the ground. They're in the middle of it. Like, that's what the ditch would look like to them. A human being looking down would notice perhaps first the contour of the earth and and, and whatever, but that's not what they would notice first. What they notice first are the plants um, that are filling it. Um, and identifying which one is. They would automatically identify by smell um, these plants that are familiar to them and whether they're good for food or not. Um, anyway... Um, I, uh, um, I it, it's uh, it's if you're willing to make the imaginative leap, if you're willing to follow uh, and begin to let yourself imaginatively see the world through the eyes of the rabbits as you go through, th- the, you know this this work is is just. It is more effective in bringing you into an imaginary, secondary world. I mean, it's it's like elite in the success with which it does that, but you've got to be willing to do it. And it's an unusual kind of thing that it asks. It's not a normal animal story in that way. Normally, it's pretty rare to read an animal story in which we are really invited to try... Actively and aggressively to leave human perspective behind, Um, uh, and anyway, so um, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Um, The bloody hole, Um, and again, notice part of the what I, I think makes that turn. Uh, from the toss off swear word by the human in the dream uh, to the prophetic insight of the bloody hole is um part of what makes that so delightful is again the fact that it's not just that that phrase turns out ironically to be not uh you know just an epithet but a but a physical description um, It's not merely the irony though that's a big part of it it's also the serendipity of it, right again. Fiver wouldn't know that that's how humans talked, right? You know, he's—it's only because he is, for some reason, receiving this direct, unmitigated, uh, local, rustic dialect that he <laughs> receives this um, um, this this prophetic vision. Um, uh, anyway, so it's. Um, uh, it's just really cool but again notice of course the recapitulation right he was following the bleeding rabbit and of course now he's following in the steps of the ble- you know so his his uh his pursuit in his mind and in his dreams the night before um now has b- you know become a physical pursuit as he is following the track of of uh of uh, you know uh, hazel's bleeding track up to the hole where his blood is still dripping um just, um, just, uh, just awesome. Um. Now, the metaphysical passage. Um, time to talk Lapine metaphysics. Hreru, said Hazel one evening, what would we have done without you? We'd none of us be here, would we? This is, of course, when they're in the ditch down in the valley at the foot of Watership Down while Hazel's healing. You're sure we are here, then? asked Fiver. "'That's too mysterious for me,' replied Hazel. "'What do you mean?' "'Well, there's another place. "'Another country, isn't there? "'We go there when we sleep, at other times, too, and when we die. "'Elehrerah comes. and "'Elehrerah comes and goes between the two as he wants, I suppose. "'But I could never quite make that out from the tales. "'Some rabbits will tell you it's all easy there, "'compared with the waking dangers that they don't understand.' but I think that only shows they don't know much about it. It's a wild place, and very unsafe. And where are we really? There or here? Our bodies stay here. That's good enough for me. You'd better go and talk to that silverweed fellow. He might know more. Oh, you remember him? I felt that when when we were listening to him, you know. He terrified me, and yet I knew that I understood him better than anyone else in that place. He knew where he belonged, and it wasn't here. Poor fellow, I'm sure he's dead. They'd got him all right. The ones in that country, they don't give their secrets away for nothing, you know. But look, here comes Holly and Blackberry. So we'd better feel sure we're here just for the moment, anyway. Okay, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a deep passage. Right? This is a lot. There's a lot here. Um, okay, the thing. I'm wanting to be most careful about is not projecting human metaphysics onto this passage. For instance. One of the thing the word I have been resisting using so far is the word spiritual. I almost called it Fiverr's spiritual journey and then I stopped and did a circumlocution instead. Um, and here's the reason I'm hesitant there. Um The idea of the physical world and the spiritual world and the relationship between those two things is um, there's there's an idea which is sort of a metaphysical framework assumption which is pretty dominant, certainly in the Judeo-Christian world. And that is the idea that human beings are fundamentally are sort of metaphysically amphibious, right? That is, we have bodies and we have souls. So you have a soul that interacts with the spiritual world. You have the bo- a body that interacts with the physical world. People use some different vocabulary to talk about those two things. I know that there are different metaphysical traditions out there. Remember I said this is the view that's dominant in the Judeo-Christian world. But this idea of a sp- this sort of the spiritual and the physical uh, different philosophies have different ideas about how those two things are connected. Um, but but this idea that human beings are, as I say, amphibious is a very old uh, and pretty pervasive idea, uh, certainly in Western culture, um, that human beings are both. Um, now, uh, traditionally, human beings are seen to be uh, that is when I think of, for instance, the uh, medieval European view. Um, human beings were thought of as being unique in that regard. That is to say, um, they're the only beings that were amphibious. That ha- that w- that is, animals and plants have physical being but not spiritual being, um, and angels have a spiritual being but not a physical body. Um, humans are the only ones who have both spiritual. Uh, being like the angels, physical body like the animals. Um, so again, they're the ones in the middle. They're at the, um, they're at sort of the, not the transition point, um, they're sort of the point of overlap, the point of contact between the spiritual and the physical world. Um, I don't want to project that assumption onto this passage. It's one of the things that that I've been really thinking about as I've been reading this passage. there are moments where it sounds like maybe that's what Fiverr is thinking. Um, but I'm not sure. It sounds to me a little bit more like Fiverr is assuming that it's sort of all or nothing, right? That is, um, there's another country that we go when we sleep and when at other times too, such as when we die, right? Um, so we go there. Um, there's there and there's here. Um, you're either in one or the other. You're not necessarily in both at the same time, but you're, you're in one or the other. Um, Hazel points out that our bodies stay here, right? Both when you sleep and when you die, your body stays here. Um, so Hazel seems to suggest a, a body-spirit duality, potentially. Um, but I don't think seeing... The way that Fiverr talks about this other place does not sound to me like we're supposed to understand this as a kind of overlay that is you've got the physical world and the spiritual world kind of coexisting, and we are existing in both of them, interacting with them differently in different ways at the same time. There's like this country over here and this country over here the conscious the the world where we live. The you know the the waking world, the living world, and then there's that other place that we go when we dream and we go when we die, and there are things that live there, um, and they uh, and it's it's a wild country, um, it's very unsafe, um, and he asks notice where are we really there or here? The answer doesn't seem to be both. Um. Uh, yeah, Tom uh, Hillman says, if if those in the other place got silverweed, it looks like the body is somehow in both places, either alternately or simultaneously. See, Tom, that's what I think Fiverr is suggesting, that silverweed was showing signs of not being 100% here. That, in, that Silverweed, in his waking life, was still sort of there. Like, <laughs> um, you know, Silverweed wasn't entirely here, you know, if you get what I'm saying. Um, except Fiverr would mean that quite literally, right? Um, Silverweed was mostly there because they, those who live in that country, had gotten him. Um, and had given their secrets away, and apparently exact a toll for that. He theorizes, Fiverr theorizes, that el can pass back and forth. Notice, doesn't say that he exists equally in both, but that he can travel back and forth between the two countries. Um, uh, though, again, Fiverr doesn't claim any authority on that, right? That's only Fiverr's own theory, he says the stories are not really clear. Um, on that point. Uh, He can never quite make that out from the tales, he says. Um, uh, um, Neil asks, is he equating dreaming and death? Uh, Well, no. I mean, not equating. But tell me if you think this is fair to say. Based on what Fiverr says here, my conclusion would be, um, if we asked Fiverr, okay, so Fiverr, are you saying that dreaming and dying are like basically the same? You know, you know, Neil, as you're saying, are you equating them? I suspect that it sounds like Fiverr would say the difference between dreaming and dying is that dreaming... When you dream, you just visit. When you die, you go to stay. Um, I, um, uh... I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, it is... Uh, Carita says it sounds scary and threatening. Yeah, it does. They don't give away their secrets for nothing. is pretty ominous, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's not a you know, notice. Fiverr's explicitly, you know, there's a you know Fiverr's reports that some people, some rabbits, seem to have the idea that it's just paradise, right? That that other world is just you know, um, a uh, uh an eternal paradise. And he says, no, no, it's not. It's it's definitely not a paradise, right? Um. Uh. But, um. Um, I take when Fiverr says, Are we, are we, where are we really, here or there? Um, again, I think the question isn't, What is the essential part of ourselves? Right? Again, like if we're thinking in the body and soul terminology, um, one question to be asked is, What is the essential part of us? right? And the traditional answer has been the soul is the essential thing. Which is why, you know, one reason why the spiritual, you know, when that kind of body-spirit dualism, you know, is the sort of the, the, the dominant idea in the metaphysic, um, the spiritual tends to dominate. Because the answer to that question, like, you've got to choose, you choose the spiritual over the physical, um, you know, that is that that's where the real identity is. Um, but that doesn't seem to be Pfeiffer's question right where are we really the really seems to me to suggest if the answer to that question is we're really there not here then here is just an illusion of some kind um just a i don't know what just a story um yeah, uh, Nancy, what an excellent insight, Nancy. Nancy says, I almost want to compare it to the difference between the wild and the hutch, and how the hutch rabbits have no conception of what the wild is like. The country he's describing is another level in wilder one, and ordinary rabbits, here Hazel, have no means of understanding it. Um, that's a marvelous parallel. I'd never thought of that before, Nancy, but that's brilliant. Um, remember also, remember the hutch rabbits have this impression that wild rabbits, like, d- are always dying constantly, like, you know, they, they, they don't really live very long because, you know, the, the world is so dangerous and scary, and, um, you know, so they have these, I, these ignorant ideas of the world, and there's truth to it, right? It is a dangerous world, and, uh, you know, wherever they find you, they shall kill you. Uh, but first they have to catch you, right? It's like they, they don't know the second part of it, because they don't know the tricks, they don't know the blessings of Frith. Their bottoms haven't been blessed in the same way, or rather they've turned away from the blessing on uh, on the bottom of Ela Herrera. Um but, uh, but anyway, but again, the point is, they have a vague sense of that outside world, of that wild world. Um, but they don't have anything like the complete picture. Um, now the understanding of that other world that Fiverr refers to is like the opposite of the Hutch Rabbits, right? That is, they have, you know, Fiverr reports, or speaks of this Rosy paradisical view of the other world, which is like no, 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 that's not the case. Um, so just as the 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 rabbits from uh, Watership Down have to convince the hutch rabbits, like oh, no, 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 actually, it's really quite nice living, um, and you know you can live with with uh, pretty good security. In the Warren, um, it's not nearly as bad as you think. Um, Fiverr is like oh no, it's much worse than you think, right? So uh, so in in both cases, there's sort of ignorance to be cured. But but Nancy, I think that that. Uh, Uh, I I think that that parallel works really well. Um, Certainly something uh, uh, to go on. Um, Yeah, Tom Hillman says, If the body is in both worlds, then wherever they find you, they will kill you, has a larger frame of reference than it first seemed. Yeah, I don't know how far to take that, exactly. I mean, it's clear that in the context of that story, Frith is talking about, you know, physical stoats and owls and things like that. Not necessarily the very ominous they um, uh, that Fiverr's referring to uh, of that other world. Um, But then again, um, it's a wild place and very unsafe. Who knows? Maybe there are Elil. Um, Does that mean it's the Elil that had gotten their claws into Silverweed? I don't think so. Remember, in his uh, uh, sort of rant about uh, the warning, you know his his spilling forth the story of the Warren of the snares uh, at the end of book one, Fiverr says Frith sent them um dreams right he sent them messengers he sent them um uh you know so Frith sends stuff to them um, and remember also that silverweed and Frith there in that last stanza right um uh. So, I I don't think it's a question of Silverweed being victimized by Elil of the Other World, exactly. Um, Yeah, Carolyn Morehouse points out that when Silverweed was reciting his poem, he was listening to something at the other end of the run that the others couldn't hear or see. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, He was listening to them, because they were giving away their secrets to him, right? Um... Anyway, uh, let's keep. You know, this is this is the passage in the whole book where this is addressed as most directly. Um, it's never going We're never gonna get more in one shot than this. But let's keep gathering data as we read through the second half of the book, um, because I want to see if we can, if we think we can, work this out a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit more closely. Um, let's shift from Lapine metaphysics to Lapine religion, explicitly. Um, here's the the other passage I didn't get to from Class 3. Uh, that is the Black Rabbit of Inlay passage. Um, so this is, of course, Bigwig in terror as Holly's arriving. That's no cat, said Bigwig, his lips drawn back in a stiffened unnatural grimace. Remember, that's also... Uh, That lips-drawn-back grimace is like the expression that um, Blackberry was making when he found the squashed hedgehog on the road. Um, Anyway, that's no cat. Don't you know what it is? Your mother... He broke off. Then he said very low, Your mother told you, didn't she? No, cried Dandelion. No, it's some bird, some rat, wounded. Bigwig stood up. His back was arched and his head knotted on his stiffened neck. The Black Rabbit of Inlay, he whispered. What else in a place like this? Don't talk like that, said Hazel. He could feel himself trembling and braced his legs against the sides of the narrow cut. Okay, now my quick question is um, how are we supposed to take this? See, on the one hand, it's not that hard for us to be dismissive. The The narrator uses the word superstitious to describe Bigwig's fear on this night. That is, later on, in retrospect, um, Bigwig's fear on this evening is characterized as a superstitious terror. We can take that as an excuse to dismiss this and be like, yeah, there's not really any such thing as the Black Rabbit of Inlay, right? That's just a story, and Bigwig is uh, getting afraid, but it's just superstition on his part. Um, and, of course, it turns out not to be the Black Rabbit of Inlay. It's Holly, right? So, in fact, we know that in fact he's incorrect. It's not the Black Rabbit of Inlay calling his name. Uh, and we seem to have some justification for dismissing his reaction as um, merely a superstitious response. I'm a little bit more cautious. Um, is it that implausible? Um, what re- at this moment now, at this moment in the story, halfway through book two um, uh, of the book... What reasons do we have? Do we have any solid reasons for thinking that there could not be such a thing as the Black Rabbit of Inlay? Um, uh, And what is the Black Rabbit of Inlay? Well, we'll talk about the Black Rabbit of Inlay next time. Um, We are going to get the story of El Ahreira and the Black Rabbit of Inlay for next class, so uh, to some extent we're going to... uh, um, we're gonna, we're, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna get too far into that discussion because we'll have much more to talk about about the Black Rabbit next time. Um, but uh, so, as far as questions about, well, who is the Black Rabbit anyway, and you know, like, what's the deal with that, and what's the relationship between the Black Rabbit and Frith, and uh, and all of, sort of those nuances of the of the belief system in which Bigwig is obviously fully invested. Um, we'll get into that next next time. But again, but back to just to Bigwig's superstitious fear. Um, remember, yes, Bigwig does believe in these things. Remember when he said that? I believe in these things? He said that when he was explaining why he was willing to accept Fiverr's word back in cha- chapter three or four, right, when they were deciding to leave the Warren. Um Bigwig's you know, his, his his first reason is that he's fed up with the three era, but his second reason to leave is that He heard Fiverr's words, and he believes in these things, right? Um, So it's only because Bigwig is superstitious that he believed Fiverr and left the Warren, and he was right to do so. Um, So we have evidence of supernatural activity in Fiverr, right, through Fiverr. We have evidence that that other world exists. And that whoever they are in the other world who revealed their secrets through Silverweed and apparently sometimes speak to and through Fiverr, um, they're real, right? So, might there be a real black rabbit? Seems possible. Um, might it be a superstition, a mere figure of speech, a mere sort of metaphor for death? Maybe. Um, I don't know. But it's one of the things that I find really fascinating about this passage is um, we as readers don't have any... It's the first time we've ever heard of the Black Rabbit of Inlay, right? So when this idea gets sort of put upon us and we sort of catch the fear of Dandelion and Bigwig there, you know, and that you know, the whole moment when he goes up to discover Holly and the way in which it invests the discovery of Holly with, um, with this uh, supernatural... Awfulness, which I mean in its old, in the old sense of that word, you know, that it's full of awe, right? Um, the finding of Holly, it would be anyway. Um, that is, it certainly is to Hazel, um, but um, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Michelle Rippert is saying how she loves that Bigwig, who is so ready to cheerfully presume on his massive strength, is the one who seems to have this superstitious streak. Yeah, it's one of the most humble things about Bigwig, right? Um, He is very confident and self-sufficient in all matters physical, Um, and yet he seems to have the spiritual world seems to sort of loom bigger to him. It's more mysterious. He doesn't know it like Fiverr knows it. That is, he doesn't encounter it, of course, like Fiverr encounters it. He's not familiar to him. It's strange to him. But he has a profound respect for it. Um, He, um, the rabbit who fears nothing has fear. Uh, again, thinking of the old senses of words. Um, you know, again, this is another classic, um, King James Bible thing. Um, when in the King James Bible they talk about the fear of the Lord, or the fear of God. Um, Bigwig has that, you know, that kind of fear, which is not terror, right? Being, fearing God is not the same thing as being afraid of God. Um, It means respect and awe and this sense of the unfathomable otherness of the thing. And uh, Bigwig has that about the spiritual world. Um, So, anyway, um, more on the Black Rabbit next time. Um, But speaking of rabbits of faith, we have Bigwig, and we also have Holly, who is clearly a rabbit of faith. Um, This, of course, is his description of the miracle which preserves uh, him and his uh, companions as they're fleeing from Ephrathah. It's going to be very hard to describe to you what happened next. Although all four of us were there, we don't understand it ourselves. But what I'm going to say now is the cold truth. Lord Frith, "'sent one of his great messengers to save us from the Afrofan Ausla. "'Each one of us had fallen over the edge of the bank in one place or another. "'Buckthorn, who was half-blinded with his own blood, went down almost to the bottom. "'I'd picked myself up and was looking back at the top. "'There was just enough light in the sky to see the Afrifins if they came over. "'And then... then an enormous thing, I can't give you any idea of it, "'as big as a thousand Hoodil bigger, came rushing out of the night.' It was full of fire and smoke and light, and it roared and beat on the metal lines until the ground shook beneath it. It drove in between us and the Ephrofans like a thousand thunderstorms with lightning. I tell you, I was beyond being afraid. I couldn't move. The flashing and the noise, they split the whole night apart. I don't know what happened to the Ephrofans. Either they ran away or it cut them down. And then suddenly it was gone and we heard it disappearing, rattle and bang, rattle and bang, far away in the distance. We were completely alone. For a long time I couldn't move. At last I got up and found the others, one by one in the dark. None of us said a word. At the bottom of the slope we discovered a kind of tunnel that went right through the bank from one side to the other. We crept into it and came out on the side where we'd gone up. Then we went a long way through the fields until I reckoned we must be well queer of Ephraim. We crawled into a ditch and slept there, all four of us, until morning. There was no reason why anything shouldn't have come and killed us, yet we knew we were safe. You may think it's a wonderful thing to be saved by Lord Frith and his power. How many rabbits has that happened to, I wonder? But I tell you, it was far more frightening than being chased by the Ephraphans. Not one of us will forget, lying on that bank in the rain while the fire creature went by above our heads. Why did it come on our account? That's more than we shall ever know." Um uh, now, um, this is a marvelous description from the rabbits Way. This is another one of those moments. It's like Holly's description of the bulldozer, right? Um, we are being invited to see, a familiar thing. What in the early twentieth century would have been an extremely familiar thing um, in, in in England, which is a train going by on the tracks, right? Um, but we're being invited to see this through rabbit eyes, and I find this passage a really powerful passage in that way. Um, uh, he, it, it, Adams, does such a great job of capturing. What that experience of a rabbit who has never seen a train and to have a train suddenly roar by um apart f- even even when you you know forget the fact that you know uh, the u catastrophic effect of the train the timing of the train um even leaving that aside um the mere fact that of being that close to a train going by and what the what the experience of that would be like, you know, when you had no idea what was going on, he captures that really well. But but what I want to focus on is the sort of the religious element um, of this, and that is Holly's statements. Are they undermined by the fact that we know it's really a train? I don't think so. Um, again, I love the way that those lines work, you know, when he says, what I'm going to say now is the cold truth. Lord Frith sent one of his great messengers to save us from the Afrith and Ausla. That is the cold truth. Now, one might be tempted to say, actually, Holly, that's not the truth, cold or otherwise, right? Um, It was just a train. Just a train, right? It was just a train. Um, I don't think it undermines it. I don't even think it's quite. I think that. Is the statement. Actually, it was just a train. It might be colder, but is it more truthful than Holly's statement? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I Because, of course, we can't entirely leave to one side the catastrophic timing of the train. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, several people were saying it, it took a while to realize he was describing a train. Um, yeah, and, and frankly, I think, if not for the description of the train tracks that they just crossed over... I'm not sure I would have under... Uh, you know, when I first read this, I, it, it might have taken me 15 times reading this book to realize that was a train, if it hadn't been for the description of the train tracks. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, as Tom says, who's to say Lord Frith didn't send the train? Uh, just because it happens to be a train doesn't mean that it's not one of his great messengers sent to save them from the Um That is to say, there may indeed be a spiritual dimension of this. Uh, there, the, you know, we we know that there are interventions into this world from that other world, right? Whether it's the kind of interventions, whether it's the whispering of secrets to Silverweed, or the bringing of dreams to Fiverr, or the uh, uttering of messages through Fiverr's mouth, even when he doesn't remember speaking, um, uh, or whether it's the inspiration Uh, of people with sort of a a thought or idea. We'll see some of that more later. Um, It's clear that howsoever separate the two countries that Fiverr was describing may be, the boundary is permeable, certainly permeable in the direction from there to here. Um, So, yeah, I I think that um, it's... um, uh the fact that it's a train certainly doesn't stop it from being uh from being miraculous, and as Emily Strand points out, the story is full of interventions on behalf of the watership Warren. absolutely absolutely, even though most of them have uh as uh, as uh, as some people are fond of saying a perfectly natural explanation right um, yeah yeah um We'll find out, by the way, that the Ephraphi rabbits who live near the train tracks, um, they they know what trains are. Um, and you know they, they're not they don't talk about fiery messengers of Frith. They talk about trains uh, on the tracks. so it's it's familiar to them. Um, so again, it's not just us as readers seeing something, you know understanding something that Holly doesn't understand. Um, even other characters in the story are going to understand something that Holly doesn't understand. But I don't think I still don't think that that necessarily undermines um, uh, uh, Holly's um, version of the story. Uh, uh, um, uh, both Matthew and uh, Matthew and Philip Lord at the same time were making the same observation about that the wonderful, wonderful uh, touch. Again, that beautiful sensory touch of the rattle and bang, rattle and bang, uh, as the as the train goes down. That's exactly what a train sounds like. It's such a beautiful, just like the cherry do, cherry do, cherry do, knee deep, knee deep, knee deep. Is such a perfect capturing of that sound. Um, uh, the rattle and bang, rattle and bang, rattle and bang, as the train goes down the track. It's exactly what it sounds like. Um, it, again, he just so captures it. Um, uh, anyway, so um, yeah, Gerald <laughs> Michael points out that, of course, the train is familiar to the Efferphans, but they're the ones who got run over. Um, yeah, true enough, um, and we'll 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 see um, when we learn out when when we learn about the Efferphan point of view on that evening. We'll hear the Efferphan side of the of the you know the, the, their account of that night, um, and uh, even their account, I think, doesn't make it. Less remarkable, to be conservative, miraculous, uh, to invest more in Holly's language there. Um, But again, notice how this is not just a religious interpretation of a remarkable event, but even the way in which it connects to profound acts of faith on Holly's part. I mean, to me, the the reason I... This is a long passage. The reason I extended this passage to get that second paragraph, uh, the description of the train, of course, is the part that I wanted to talk about most, but I think this latter reference is, to me, really important to capture the whole spirit of the thing. Um, There was no reason why anything shouldn't have come and killed us, yet we knew we were safe. Right, The faith that they have is like, it was terrifying, but... The take-home message we got is that Frith is looking out for us, right? For whatever reason, and I'm not saying I want it to happen again, uh, because it was terrifying, but apparently we were under the protection of Frith, so we didn't even set a watch. We just, in the middle of this country... Wounded, exhausted, Buckthorn is cut. He smells of blood. So we're all, we're exhausted and helpless. Going to sleep in the open with no holes to bolt to, reeking of blood. But it doesn't matter. We're not even going to set a watch because we know there's there's no question of Elil coming in the night or of a patrol discovering them because they are they are in Frith's hands and Frith is protecting them. Um, and for Holly, that's um, that's that's an act of faith. Gerald is reminding uh, us of the way in which Holly's search for Bigwig was an act of faith at the beginning. Uh, He just had some idea that he he had to, you know, that he would find Bigwig. He was tracking Bigwig with his skill at first. Um, That's how they got to Cowslip's Warren. But but the path from there, um, he was like out of his mind. Um, But... uh um, anyway, yeah, and Kay points out, of course, and they weren't killed that night. Just a train shouldn't have guaranteed that. Yes, exactly. The fact that their faith, in fact, turned out to be well-founded, um, does, I, I agree, seem to, uh, seem to mean something. Um, James Stevens is recalling great danger, uh, and blessing to the Warren. Um, all right. I- I'm totally getting to the questions. Really, I am. Um, Stuff It's so interesting to look at. Two more quick things. Um, and that is... Uh, this is kind of a launching-off point towards next week. Um, looking at the way in which... their own understanding of their experience is gaining a mythic dimension as time goes on. Um... The following morning all the rabbits were out at Silflay by dawn, and there was a good deal of excitement as they waited for Hazel. During the previous few days Blackberry had had to repeat several times the story of the journey to the farm and the finding of Hazel in the drain. One or two had suggested that Kehar must have found Hazel and told Fiverr secretly, but Kehar denied this, and when pressed, replied cryptically that Fiverr was one who had travelled a good deal further than he had himself. Uh, really interesting that Kehar shows so much respect for Fiverr's insight. Um, Kehar not generally a fan of the puny rabbits, uh, but uh, Fiverr's in a different category. As for Hazel, he had acquired in everyone's eyes a kind of magical quality. Of all the warren, Dandelion was the last rabbit to fail to do justice to a good story, and he had made the most of Hazel's heroic dash out of the ditch to save his friends from the farmers. No one had even suggested that Hazel might have been reckless in going to the farm. Against all odds, he had got them two does, and now he was bringing their luck back to the warren. Um... Uh, yeah, Thomas Johnson. I agree, Tom. Uh, Thomas says, uh, it's interesting that even some of the rabbits are trying to find rational explanations for supernatural events. Yeah, they th- some of them do have that impulse, right? We see still resistance against that because it's scary. I mean, look what happens when you do invest in it, right? Um, I, I mean, like, look at Bigwig's fear in the ditch, right? Because he believes wholeheartedly uh, in... These supernatural things—it's um, um, a lot more comfortable, not you know, to not go there. But anyway, um, what I want to focus on here is the increasingly mythic status of Hazel and Fiverr. At the end of Book One, we saw how you know Hazel's leadership, Bigwig's strength, Blackberry's brains, and and uh, and and Fiver's insight had now been established, right? Now people, those are a known quantity. The rabbits trust those things, right? At the end of Book 2, we've gone up another notch. Hazel and Fiverr certainly have gone up another notch at this point, right? Um, Now Hazel's leadership and Fiverr's insight have attained a kind of magical quality. Fiverr's insight was always magical, um, but again, both of them are now quasi-mythic figures on their own right um it is as if hazel has returned from death um it's not just like wow, that was really lucky. turns out that hazel escaped how fantastic it, it's it's fantastic indeed um it's uh it's there's some, there's there's a kind of magical quality to it um that really strikes them um and you think about how um I think back to Fiverr's question, where are we really? Well, yeah, where are they really? Um, They are almost becoming like magic figures themselves. Um, I don't want to talk about it too much right now. We can think about it more. I especially want to come back to this question at the end, the very end of the book. Um, So we'll talk about this again in five weeks or something. But, um, but I, I just wanted to draw attention to this thing in order to, in the context of what we've been talking about in order to set up that discussion. And, um... Yeah, Michael Cheskovsky Chis- uh, says, uh, it's like Frodo and Sam's discussion of the uh, the people in the stories. Yeah, the, their discussion on the stairs of Cirith uh, It is a little bit like that. Um, uh, but, um... I, just one last passage in the same regard. Um... The, this passage always hit me really hard. Hey, this is, they're talking about the plan to get the dose out. Of, you know, the, the need to go to Ephra go back to Afrafa, and get the dose out. Hey, Holly starts. It can't be done. It can't be done by fighting or fair words. No. So it will have to be done by means of a trick. There's no trick that will get the better of that lot, believe me. There are far more of them than there are of us. They're high, they're very highly organized, and I'm only telling the truth when I say that they can fight, run, and follow a trail every bit as well as we can, and a lot of them much better. The trick, said Hazel, totally disregarding Holly. The trick, said Hazel, turning to Blackberry, who all this time had been nibbling and listening in silence. The trick will have to do three things. First, it will have to get the doze out of Ephraim. And secondly, it will have to put paid to the pursuit. For a pursuit there's bound to be, and we can't expect another miracle. But that's not all. Once we're clear of the place, we've got to become impossible to find, beyond the reach of any wide patrol. Yes, said Blackberry doubtfully. Yes, I agree. To succeed, we should have to manage all those things. Yes. And this trick, Blackberry, is going to be devised by you. (laughs) I always found that sentence... uh. Sort of lands like a like a like a like an anvil, uh, you know. Uh, I, I just think of the line, and some have greatness thrust upon them. It's like no pressure, Blackberry. Um, you, Blackberry, are going to devise one of the greatest tricks in the history of rabbitry. Um, you've got like a day sorted out, <laughs> right? And The way that Hazel just places this on Blackberry. Um, and he does this, and i and I love I love the ten this is not do you think you can do it, blackberry? this is not, and blackberry, I think you're the chap to do it. Remember Hazel has talked like that before, um. Remember the narrator drawing attention to how Hazel was imitating the Three threeiros wily courtesy, right? Um, we've seen him use diplomacy in active ways in order to try to, um, you know, bring people into the correct frame of mind. For the, you know, we've seen Hazel do this. It's part of leadership, um, but it's not what he's doing here, right? He's not saying like, you know, Blackberry, I believe in you. You know, it's, no, it's a statement of fact. This trick is going to be devised by you. You don't realize it yet, Blackberry, but this is going to happen. Um, uh, It's a statement of fact, right? Uh, Blackberry, too, is a mythic figure. And Hazel sees that, right? Hazel trusts that. Um, This is a statement of faith of a different kind as well. Um, Gerald is asking, does Hazel have a touch of Fiverr's sight? I don't know. I, it doesn't come across exactly like prophecy, but I see what you mean. It's like partially there. Um, it, it, it seems like it's it's like a, the cousin of Fiverr's prophetic declarations, right? It's not the same thing. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I just I love that statement. And again, Blackberry... Um, He's, uh, he's not just placing a difficult job on Blackberry's shoulders, um, but really saying somehow you are going to enable us to do the impossible, because, because it's who you are, it's what you're for, it's your destiny. Embrace your destiny, BlackBerry. Anyway, okay. Um, questions! I'm going to get to questions. Um, uh, a few observations. So uh, this was from Bruce, who uh, um, can't be with us. He's, he doesn't attend the classes live, um, but got to listen to Sunday's class before tonight. So uh, emailed me a question. Um, or observation, really. My major thought isn't necessarily just about this section of the book, but rather an overall thought. The whole epic story can be dismissed in that it is just about rabbits. For instance, the journey from the Sandalford Warren to Watership Down, which is the stuff of legends that will be told for generations, is only about four miles or so. I assume the lifespan of wild rabbits is only a few years, so the rise and fall of rabbit empires here happens in a year or so. So it is tempting to be dismissive. To minimize Hazel and company in comparison to our lives, the wars we fight, uh, the rise and fall of our civilizations over multiple centuries. But then, if we look at our own lives and civilizations from the outside on a cosmic scale, they're pretty insignificant. And so Adams teaches us to be humble about ourselves. But, on the flip side, Adams doesn't let us dismiss Hazel and company. Their deeds are truly heroic, and they show nobleness of spirit, or depths of despotism, etc., when you look at Woonwart, and the same applies to us as well. And so, once Adams humbles us, he also lifts us up. This is a big part of what I love about this book. I know you mentioned that you aren't trying to make this a Tolkien class, and this isn't all about comparing, but giving us this rabbit's-eye view of epic quests is closely related to Tolkien's giving us the whole rise and fall of civilization in Middle-earth from the view of very rabbit-like hobbits. Um, Yes, yes, there is some uh, evidence for that connection anyway, Um, but... um, but yeah, yeah, Michael was saying this is how Ents view human wars. Uh, exactly. Um, we do get the, that kind of shifting of perspective, I agree, uh, in Tolkien as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, so uh, this is not exactly a question. I wanted to share it because, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I agree. I'm really glad, uh, Bruce, in particular, that you flipped it around like that, because I agree both of those effects, I think, are really important. Um, and uh, anybody who reads this book and is like oh man come on it's just a, a story about rabbits or any or or even worse there are moments like we've been talking about a couple times tonight there are like with the train there are moments where we as we see through this right we see that is we see around it we understand the bigger picture of this story in ways that the rabbits don't right like the great, huge, and amazing, mysterious catastrophe was just a building development going in, right? And a bulldozer clearing land. Um, We know the reality around and behind this. We're even reminded in ways like that, that this is really a small-scale parochial story in some sense, right? But anybody who reads this story and is just dismissive in that way just about rabbits, whatever, it's no big deal. Um, or worse, who sniggers at them, right? Um, who thinks, like, the joke is on them, because they're making a big deal out of what is really nothing. Um, if you ca- If you don't invest yourself imaginatively in, for instance, the crossing of the common at night and how horrible that is, and be like, well, really, I mean... What's really, you know, just like it's not a flaming messenger of Frith, it's really just a train, right? And the common, I mean, it's really a wet open field where you might get your boots muddy, but you'd cross it in a matter of minutes, you know, uh, maybe an hour. Um, it's not really a big deal, really, right? Just. Um, I, I, anybody who reads it that way is completely. Just deaf to what the story is doing. I mean, they're just they're just stubborn, or maybe it's sadder than that. You know, maybe they're just blind. Maybe they're stunted imaginatively, so they can't do it. Uh, I, I mean, I have more pity than uh, than than anger at such people, but um, uh, but anyway, um, certainly they're not you know wrapping their minds and imaginations about it around it, and therefore they're missing. The, the really quite salutary application to our society that Bruce is pointing out, both of which I think are really are really spot on um, by the way, in conjunction with this um, one of my one of my Twitter followers um, she's one of several people who uh, said at the beginning um, you know when I was first announcing the watership down class uh, on my Twitter feed that um you know she'd seen the movie and thought it was really grim and depressing and so she was going to give Watership Down a pass because it's too grim and depressing and so I was immediately like no 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 the book is not grim and depressing um you know don't let the film deceive you um the book is not grim and depressing um you know please read it with us and give it a shot um and she just tweeted me again and was like this seems as grim as the movie you know when does it get good and i'm just like I don't know where to start. Um, Because that seems to me just like a different kind of problem, you know? I mean, is it grim? Well, um... Uh... I mean, in one sense, yeah. Terrible things happen. Um... Uh... There's great danger. Um... But... That's one of the gifts of Ella Crera. I don't know I mean it's uh, I find myself quite speechless in uh, it's, I, I don't even know how to respond um, especially in 140 characters um, about this but uh, um, but I'd actually I'd like to come back to this later on I, I just wanted to mention it now um, is this a grim story or and if not, what stops it from being grim? Um, I, yeah, because I mean, it's not. Like it's a cheerful story. Part of it, I feel like, is sort of the expectations. Like, what do you want—a story in which there, like, nothing bad happens, in which there are no obstacles? Um, I mean, I take, for instance. something like uh, you know, The Song of Ice and Fire by Ger Martin Um, uh, Ger Martin's stories are grim, right? Unrelentingly grim mercilessly grim I find them soul-destroyingly grim I have to, like, rally myself um, uh, between uh, his books because there's no relief from the grimness, there's no hope Against the grimness, um, uh, these books are full of hope, uh, and there's a there's tremendous payoff. Uh, you know, it's not just about the heaping up of of horrible things, um, but um, anyway, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Philip Lord says Hazel would have been dead before the warn of the snares if Martin was telling the story. Yeah, I just think about how they made it to Watership Down without losing a single rabbit. <laughs> eat your heart out Ger Martin. Uh but anyway, um uh, uh let me move on. I, I don't I, I don't want to beat on uh, uh uh Ger Martin, but he's certainly my standard for grim uh, you know in uh, uh, in sort of contemporary uh writing uh, but anyway uh, Mark Willie said um, he's the one who in class last time was um uh, let's see is mark here tonight uh, no, he's not here tonight, but he was the one last time who was talking about parallels and was asking me if uh um it was Suggesting parallels between the story and a Bronze Age epic. It was his observation that led me to do my detour uh, into the parallel between the Aeneid and Watership Down last time. Um, So he was following that up with an email. um, And basically, sort of his question is about, um, uh, is that parallel legitimate? I mean, is there something... does that help? Is there something really there? Um, The one thing I've been wondering is, is it an an example of false narrative to say that one story reminds me of another story? When I told you that Watership reminded me of a bronze, Bronze Age saga, I actually wondered if I was accidentally missing something by seeing parallels that might not actually exist. How do you feel about comparing two very distant and unrelated stories and seeing similarities in them? Is it unproductive or useful? That's a great question. Um, And the answer is both. Depends on how you do it and what you do. Um, Um, It it, it can be unproductive. I think it's often unproductive um, when people are sort of making parallels. Um, But it can also be useful, too. The usefulness of it take the parallel I was making with the Aeneid last time. Um, uh, did Adams intend that? I kind of suspect he might have, but I wouldn't be dismayed if I were to discover that he didn't intend that at all. Um, I still find it kind of interesting. But I'm conscious, you know, the fact that I only brought that up as a side note and dropped it again right away is because I'm not, I don't really do anything with it. Um, what I would do, to me, sort of the logical thing to do on seeing that parallel, would be to go back and reread the Aeneid and do a, a deeper reading, not trying to sort of strain them point by point and taking, you know, and attempting essentially to transfer to transform Watership Down into an allegory um, of the Aeneid. I was emailing with uh, Chris Swank um, a couple weeks earlier. Chris is here tonight, and uh, we were sort of joking about. You know, sort of pursuing that line of thinking, and uh, and uh, Chris was was asking, does that make cowslip dido, uh, <laughs> which is like, no. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I, I, that's not productive, I don't think. Um, but what I would want to do is not not to be straining the parallel in that way, but to look at okay, you know, when you when if those connections suggest putting these two stories um, side by side. um, what do we see when we do that? You know, when we when we read the Inead and we read this and we look at the similarities, um, to be thinking about this, you know, it, it invites comparison. So we think about the similarities and differences. Maybe there's things that, you know, th- uh, that things in one story, you know, connections between the two stories or divergences between the two stories, which really sort of help to draw our attention to one thing about one story or the other. That can often be a really productive exercise. And I don't even think that that, you know, intention of the author, to me, doesn't even really um, matter all that much. I mean, again, if I found out that, no, no, he, Adams had never read the Aeneid, I'd be a little surprised if he never read the Aeneid. But um, if, if I, you know, if it were to be proven to me that Adams had never even read the Aeneid and and, and, uh, and, and didn't know a thing about it, um, I, I would still find it an interesting parallel, uh, nevertheless. Um uh, because again it's not I'm not trying to make it into an allegory um but you know look at the things um that um you know the way in which it helps you to see um the the you know to ask questions like what is the focus of the Aeneid you know what is the Aeneid about what is you know I think when you sort of compare them in in, in sort of broad terms, you look at the sort of the, the, the spirit and the themes and the focus of those two stories, um, there are a lot of connections. And, you know, so the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, actually, I think there's a lot there. There's a lot there that works. So they're not the same, but the more you think about it, the more productive, the more it helps to draw things out about both books and helps you to come to a sort of a more interesting understanding of both stories. That, to me, is productive. That's really interesting to do. What I find most frustrating is when people just make claims... Often, kind of strained claims of parallels, and just didn't just kind of leave it there. Um, and it's like, so what? You know, it's the question I always want to ask. So what? Who cares? More, more. Keep thinking about it. Um, that's where the that's where the analysis should start, not where it should end. So that's my uh, um, uh, that's uh, that's that's my uh, um, my thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh Tom said, Tom Hillman says, But the shapes on the wall at the Warren of the Snares are the inverse of the images Aeneas uh sees at Carthage. Uh the the, the images of Troy he sees at Carthage, uh because they look like nothing to Hazel and Company. Um yeah, irony, Tom. See it's irony, it's exactly it's inverted the the, the fact that you get the shapes on the walls. I too was thinking of that scene when uh in, when Aeneas is transfixed by the by the sight of the the uh the images depicted on the walls of Carthage. But anyway. Um. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Nancy. I'm coming to yours in just a second here. Um, in fact, I'm coming to it next. Uh, here's uh, part. This is not all of Nancy's uh, observation, but part of it. Um, she says maybe it's just the influence of the Dune class. But I've been looking, thinking about the epigraphs for the chapters as I've come across them. Of course, their nature is completely different because they're totally external to the story. Um. For those of you who uh, who are here who didn't do the Dune class with us, of course, every chapter in Dune by Frank Herbert has an epigram at the begin an, an an epigraph at the beginning, but it's um it's a fictitious quotation from books written by a character within that world whom we don't meet until the very end of the story. But um but it, it's all it's part of the of the secondary world of the story. Those epigraphs are, whereas these epigraphs are taken from. Primary world books, which are mostly not related to the secondary world that we're that we're reading about. So, um, um, uh, so anyway, yes, yeah, so okay. It's interesting that they. Uh, it's interesting that they are there. We talked at the beginning of class about Watership Down as another world existing side-by-side side with the one we know by virtue of being seen through the eyes of rabbits, and the absence of any kind of frame narrative, but I've noticed that Adams frequently does things that acknowledge that he is a human writer addressing human readers. There are the moments when he steps aside and explains rabbits, as when he explains the concept of hair, and other times, like at the beginning of chapter 12, when he brings in a human being as a metaphor that no rabbit would understand. However, I think the quotations he uses are the clearest examples of this." Um, I agree, Nancy. Um, I agree with that, though I would say part of what you're saying there, Nancy, is exactly arguing the point that I was trying to make. That is, what Adams does not seem to have built into this narrative is a fictional frame that explains, that actually frames the story. That actually tells, like like for instance, um, the uh, I'm gonna talk about Tolkien here. The Lord of the Rings has a, a full frame. That is, we actually see the Lord of the Rings book itself written at the end of the book, right? Frodo hands a copy uh, well, not the copy that you're reading, but the source material of the book that you're reading. To Sam at the end of the book, and reads the title page, which is like, you know, a uh, uh, 17th century Puritan version. You know, like the, I, I love 17th century Puritan ti- book titles, which are like, uh, you know, 150 words long. But anyway, Frodo's title of the book is really really long. Uh, and uh, uh, but anyway, it's clearly the book that you've just finished reading. Right. Um, so there is a clear manuscript history of where this account that you're reading came from and how the things that are revealed to you in the book are known. Right. The narrator knows what's going on in Sam's mind because the person who wrote this book talked to Sam about it. Right. I mean, we, we get that kind of frame of The Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit is one step removed from that. There's kind of a frame to it. Um, we do see Bilbo writing his diary at the end, but the, um, the, the uh, narrator of the book is not Bilbo. It's a 20th century editor who is giving us, who is recounting this story to us, who's transmitting this story to us. And the difference between the Hobbit, you know, the original Hobbit, uh, and the Lord of the Rings is that we don't get that frame of, we don't know how, we, how, how did he get it. Where did the 20th century editor who is narrating The Hobbit get the book? How did he get a hold of Bilbo's diary that he's somehow transmitting to us? We don't know. As, you know, we sort of are told, the manuscript history of The Lord of the Rings. Adams doesn't do anything like that. Adams is further in the same direction if we imagine that as a spectrum with The Lord of the Rings on one end and The Hobbit in the middle. Um, uh, Watership Down is on the other end. Um, Yes, we do get those reminders that it's a human narrator telling us. Um, It's one of the things... The book is not just 100% from the rabbit point of view. Um, It is very much a human relating to us a story from the rabbit point of view. But... There's no explanation. There's no fictional. There's. It's not part of the of the fictional frame. How the human narrator, who does show him, who does not only show himself as a human, but also shows that he the he knows the audience of the book are humans, right? Um, It's clearly one human being speaking to others, and recounting this rabbit story. But how does he know it? Where did he get it? Who told it to him? There's no sense of that anywhere in the story. Um, So that's what I mean by saying that we don't get that kind of frame um, to it. Again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not necessarily saying it's a weakness. Um, Adams doesn't seem really interested at all in doing that here. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, sorry, Um, Nancy, going on. Some of them are from Lockley, going back to the epigraphs. Some of them are from Lockley and give us background information that helps us understand what's going on, but most of them are literary references. Not only that, they're literary references which extend beyond the citation. We've talked about Cassandra already in the first quotation, but a lot of the meaning of that quotation isn't in the quotation itself, but depends on the readers to understand who Cassandra is and why she perceives things differently. I suspect a lot of the others work the same way, but I don't know all of them as well. Na- and I, Nancy, I'm, I'm, I'm doing you a terrible injustice by not including... The, the rest of her email goes on to talk... To, she, she begins doing some particular analysis of one of the th- ones that she was most interested in which is the uh, the the quotation from um, from Songs of Innocence and Experience by Blake, um, and uh, uh, and I Nancy, I think there's 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 some really interesting stuff there, and she's thinking about the way in which that particular epigraph relates to the content of that chapter, and how that seems to be connected with some of the themes of Blake's poetry and stuff like that. One of the reasons I didn't give that full quotation is I knew it would be hard to talk about in this context because I'm not going to assume that most of you know Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience, you know, uh, or sorry, not song, but Marriage of Heaven and Hell. You're right, Nancy. I'm misspeaking myself. Um, Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, anyway, anyway, um, I'm not going to assume that you all know William Blake by heart, and so the discussion wouldn't necessarily be that meaningful um, to talk about. Though, Nancy, I can't help but think, that sounds like a heck of a paper topic. I could totally imagine a MythMoot 2016 paper being given on that subject. Just saying. But anyway, um, uh, see, I uh, you could use that Blake passage as a stepping off point to look at the way that Adams uses the epigraphs in general. Um, Someone else, and I'm—I I apologize. I'm blanking on the name. Some, um, <clears throat> but somebody else was, um, um, in an email, in a different email. Um, was it Carrie Alexander? Maybe. Um. Uh, was also talking about the epigraphs and saying that um, I, it, it, it seems to, it seems to almost to, sort of to provide. A, a different kind of framework um, what we what we're given are sort of these touchstones to uh, to the primary world to our world which kind of in a sense um, contextualize um, the whole thing by the way Nancy Corita Alexander is asking you to post your full uh, analysis in the forum and um, uh, which I encourage you to do. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Josh was just suggesting the same thing. Uh, so yeah, so Nancy, go post that on the SigNum discussion forum, and uh, and 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 then people can see the whole argument. You guys can talk about Blake there. Um, uh, anyway, and th- that can be see the stepping off point for your for your for your later uh, essay. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> okay. The way the epigraphs serve as a kind of uh, as as a kind of framework. Um, they really set off, without breaking the frame of the rabbit story, without breaking the frame of the secondary world, um, it contextualizes it. I think, for instance, um, of the quote from uh, Napoleon that we get when Hazel is first entering into leadership and leading the rabbits through the woods and across the Endborn, and we get that quotation from Napoleon Bonaparte. the quotations from, uh, you know, epic stories and everything. Um, uh, the way that we get... And, and I agree, Nancy, with your kind of combination of things. That is, with, with your breaking them down into the private life of the rabbit quotations on the one hand and the literary quotations on the other hand. Um, one effect, I think, of the private life of the rabbit... Quotations is to provide a kind of framework for the rest of the framework. That is, um, some uh, 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 the private life of the rabbit epigraphs um, are a way of providing us sort of real world context. Right? Like, here is some here is some information that will help you better understand what's going on in this chapter. Right? So we have that cue. We're sort of taught um, by those Lockley passages to kind of have that relationship with the epigraphs. Right, So then, when we get quotations from uh, uh, you know, Greek tragedy and we get quotations from Napoleon Bonaparte, we get quotations from, from William Blake, um, we're, we have that cue of, like, you're getting stuff here that will help you to understand the story. And you do. I agree with you, uh, Nancy. Now, I'm not convinced that 100% of the quotations work that way. That is, that Adams is really with every single one of those. Um, You know, like, if you take the lines of that, you know, he'll do a few lines of a poem. If you were to read the entire poem and think about the themes of that poem, they would be really relevant to the themes of that chapter. I'm not convinced that that's always true. Sometimes they seem to work almost more like a kind of pun, um, almost work by being, by, by being taken out of context, and uh, in being placed in the new context within this chapter, a new, um, uh, a new relevance is being granted to those lines. Um, so sometimes it seems to work the other way. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, I, 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 I still think there's, there's sort of a lot there, maybe... Here's something that would be interesting. Um, remember how, those of you who are in the Dune class, remember how I was doing the sort of uh, uh, pseudo-statistical analysis of the Princess Irulan quotations, right? And and we were looking at, like, the, the the distributions. We were trying to get a sense of the complete works of Princess Irulan and how those quotations broke down and looking at the patterns of which books were, were quoted from uh, in, you know, which parts of the story. Um, it would be interesting to do a similar analysis of the epigraphs here um, and look at the way, the kinds of quotations that we get. You'd have to categorize them sort of differently. That would be another interesting project that somebody should do. Somebody should totally do this. Uh, anybody who does it, uh, I, would be, I would be interested to see it uh, and talk about it later on. Definitely something I'd like to come back to in our second uh, bonus class. Um, I'm keeping you really late now, but I only have a few more, so let me go through these, uh, you know, efficiently, like usual. Carrie Alexander, self-sacrifice. Is it a rabbit virtue? That is, we see Elehera thinking about the needs of his people, and putting them above his personal safety. Hazel does the same, as does Pipkin, Fiver, Bigwig, and all of the hero-rabbits. We hear that the threeero once did so in the matter of the stoat, but his lettuce is brought to him in later days. But has lettuce brought to him in later days. There was no self-sacrifice in the Warren of the Snares, nor, as far as we have read, is there a spirit of self-sacrifice in Ephrathah. Going on dangerous missions seems to have a more Klingon-like air of battle honor and competition. In Ephrifa, she she means. Um, We'll get more on that. Is willingness to put yourself in danger for the good of fellow rabbits one of the traits that distinguishes a great rabbit from a lesser rabbit? Is that at odds with the blessing of being able to run away very, very fast? At the outset of the adventure, Bigwig was willing to leave the small rabbits behind when there was danger too big for him to fight. Bluebell also left Holly when he thought they were set on by Elil. I ran away when I heard you coming. I couldn't get the captain to move. I thought you were Elil and there was no point in staying to be killed. I don't think I could fight a field mouse. I'm not sure if self-sacrifice is a virtue held up by all good rabbits, or if it is one of the ways that this particular warren is, well, weird in a nice way great question, great observation. Um, uh, I agree. I, Michael Chyskowski is saying the same thing. I agree, El Herrera is certainly willing to sacrifice himself. And that's going to be more emphatically queer. Um, the self-sacrifice of El Herrera is going to be a major theme in the story of El Herrera and the Black Rabbit of Inlay, which we're going to talk about next time. Um, so we'll come back to this. But um, my quick response to this would be is it a general rabbit trait? Are we right in saying it? And just, I, I love the categorical question, Carrie. I love the fact that you're asking this question, um, doing a great job of not taking for granted our human values and just projecting them on, you know, can we, you know, is it a rabbit virtue? Is it safe to say that self-sacrifice is a rabbit virtue? You could certainly build a build an argument to say it would make sense that it wouldn't be. Um, I guess what I would say is, I, you're clearly right, the heroic rabbits do it. El Arrera does it, Hazel does it, um, uh, Bigwig does it. It's, 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 that's definitely a thing, and it's clearly a value, and it's clearly a virtue. But, I would also say, lack of self-sacrifice, or what we, in human terms, would call selfishness, does not seem to be a vice, In the same way, um, among rabbits as among humans. For instance, Bigwig. Um, Bigwig wanting to leave the rabbits behind. I don't think that's him being wicked or awful. Nor, again, remember, when he wants to leave the hutch rabbits behind. You know, when he's like, uh, you know... not, Not even just in the moment... You know, when the dog is barking and the car is coming up the lane and, and everything's, everything, you know, the, the raid is all, you know, blown to hell. It's not just then, but earlier on, um, uh, when they're planning the raid. Remember, Bigwig makes that comment where he's like, remember, well, Ewell will take the hindmost. Worst comes to worst, we just bolt and leave the Hutch rabbits and the Ewell will kill them instead, right? And he recognizes, he says, I know it's tough, but, you know, um, if there's, if it really comes to it, we should make sure to save our own rabbits first. Um, I don't think, I don't think that we're supposed to despise Bigwig for that. I don't think that's a major blemish in Bigwig. Any more than Hazel asking, will the Hutch be any good? You know, that kind of utilitarian view of the does, I don't think is something that we're supposed to despise Hazel for, either. Um... Hazel doesn't leave the Hutch Rabbits behind, right? Hazel goes back self-sacrificially, almost succeeds in sacrificing his life uh, to save the Hutch Rabbits. But remember, he's motivated not just by pure altruism, but also by the need to make use of the Hutch Rabbits to save the Warren, the utility as well. Um, uh, So... There's practicality, as we might say, pragmatism, maybe, on both sides, both in Bigwig's statement about Elil taking the hindmost, and also in Hazel's act of self sacrifice, um, to some extent, anyway. Um, I'm not saying his self sacrifice as a whole is entirely and merely pragmatic, but, um, but again, there's that. I mean, he doesn't just go back for the hutch rabbits because it's the right thing to do he goes back because he wants to, uh, because he believes it's worth it to save the Hutch Rabbits. Um, uh, anyway, um, Thomas says, Hazel also looks pretty silly if the Hutch Rabbits don't get back to Watership Down. Yeah, and Fiverr looks kind of right <laughs> if if they don't get back to Watership Down. Um, that it's a silly prank in the end. Um, if uh, uh, that he, and Him just being a silly show-off. Um, anyway, um, so that's my general sense. Yes, it's a virtue, but I don't think um you know the, the it's 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 inverse is necessarily um a vice in the same way. um yeah, um on a related note, Alyssa has an observation about the um the nut hanger farm dilemma that we were discussing so um, so much last time. Since last class, she says, I've been thinking more about why Hazel would try after the fact to hide from Fiverr where he'd been in reconnaissance of Nuthanger Farm. I agree with the favorable interpretations raised in class that Hazel is manifesting the mischievous spirit of El Hrera, which is like a verse from Old English maxims, which, which, like a verse from Old English maxims, says that if there is a farm, a rabbit must raid it, and that Fiverr is not correct in his loss-benefit analysis... Uh, also, with the sense of that the venture is nonetheless not quite right. I wonder if a textual clue to this latter point might be found in the verbal hesitations with which the narrative reports Hazel's pre-consideration. Something to well, not to diminish what they were going to do, no, of course not, but just to show them that their chief rabbit was up to anything that they were up to. Your reading of this passage was that it demonstrated Hazel's humility, the limits on his pride and desire for dominance. Would you accept an alternate reading of the hesitations, as Hazel trying to mitigate or justify to himself a desire he knows is not completely kosher? Mixing works again, it sounds to me rather to resemble what you've termed the ring-induced monologue, the, reason, the reasoning Hazel does uh the reasoning Hazel does uh there to justify a temptation that he has. Um yeah, the ring induced monologue for and to Tolkien reference, um, and that's a reference to the times for those of you who aren't familiar with this, um with that is with my dictum, not with the Lord of the Rings necessarily, but um I call a ring induced monologue those times in the Lord of the Rings when a character is it's when it's clear in context that a character is being tempted b- by the ring, is being tempted to do something um, that they shouldn't do, something out of character. It often comes out in in the monologue that they make, like Boromir uh, when he's ranting to Frodo. Um, But not always, it doesn't always come out. It's also, like, the thoughts that go through Frodo's mind in the barrow when he's thinking of escaping and leaving Merry and Pippin and Sam behind. Um... uh, The narrative doesn't explicitly say, we don't get a dialogue between him and the ring that, you know, we don't get, like, the ring speaking in italics in his mind or anything like that, but the narrative, you know, the the way the narrator tells it prompts us to, uh, to see that this is, there's something else going on here. We can see how he's justifying himself. We can begin to see the pattern of these things. Um... Great observation, Alyssa. I, I I agree with you. I certainly would accept that reading of there, um, that reading of that um, as being a pretty clear red flag. Um, now, Alyssa, when I got your email and was thinking about that, my first thought was, yes, I'm definitely willing to grant that, but I don't know that it gets me any close to an a- answer to my question. And the answer to my question was, and my question was. So what's wrong with it then? If, in your in your summary, with which you you know Alyssa, you said you agreed um, that he's manifesting the mischievous spirit of Elaherah, you know that there is a farm. If there is a farm, a rabbit must raid it, is a fact, um, and that Fiver is wrong. Um, you know Hazel is more correct in his idea of the the cost benefit thing. Um, if those things are true, then what's wrong? What is off about it? Um, wherein lies the, the mistake that he's making? Um, if Fiverr isn't completely right, what ex- in what sense is Hazel wrong? And this is where I came back to um, Carrie's observation in the previous, uh, in the previous slide, The Business About Self-Sacrifice. When is running risks wrong, right? Remember the uh, the my little sub heading. Uh, my little subtitle for this slide was running our risks for us. Uh, and of course, Carrie, I was thinking there of Dandelion's words to uh, to Hazel. Um, you know, in the wood near the Entborn, near the en- Entborn. Listen to me, it's uh, it's 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 too late now. Uh, the Entborn. Um, uh, that, you know, you're running our risks for us, like El Um With Nuthanger Farm, Hazel's not running risks for them, like El Um Again, he mostly is. He kind of is. But what happens, the devastation that is brought on the warren when everyone believes Hazel to be dead shows that he was wrong to risk himself in that way. Um, That he wasn't quite right about the cost-benefit analysis either. Um, And what it, you know, thinking about these two slides together got me thinking, maybe what is wrong with what hazel's doing at nuthanger farm is that he's not seeing the limits of um, um, he's not seeing the limits of uh, of self-sacrifice or like the appropriateness of self-sacrifice um, the willingness to sacrifice your life for others is a great thing, especially a wonderful thing in a leader, like Hazel. But risking your life unnecessarily, bringing about your death, and thereby the ruin of the Warren, as he nearly did, um, is not the right way to act. it has to be tempered with more wisdom than that Um, there's more to being a leader self-sacrifice is good but there's more to being a leader than self-sacrifice and uh (laughs) <laughs> Thomas says does hazel not understand that something can be true and still be de- and still be great folly uh, yeah quoting Fiverr about uh, about silverweed exactly it can be true and still be great folly um exactly exactly rachel says it seems like he was creating his own risks in order to run them yeah to some extent I mean, you could say the problem was that he was going he was finding danger instead of uh, instead of handling danger yeah but again i agree with him i mean Again, events seem to show going out and bringing the does back from the hutch is a good thing, right? Um, uh, and worth the risk. So again, it's not it's not just a silly prank. It's not um, he's not just being a silly show-off, as Fiver accuses him. Um, but um, yeah, oh, interesting. Sarah Lagarde says, "Is there something of Beowulf and the dragon in this kind of self sacrifice for a leader?" Yeah, maybe. that is In that Beowulf is clearly making a wrong choice in refusing to let his warriors help him with the dragon. Um, And the end is desolation as a consequence. Yeah, I think, Sarah, that is kind of the direction that I'm thinking there. Um, I don't think... Ironically, the actual act that gets Hazel shot I don't think was wrong. You know that I actually feel that that action—the action of of bolting from the ditch and dr- and directing the flashlights of the men towards him so that um, Dandelion and Haystack wasn't it that was with them um, uh, uh, could escape. That action I, I think is unequivocally right. I mean, I think in that moment he did the right thing, um, but. He shouldn't have been there, you know. Like that, that it shouldn't happen that way. Um, uh, anyway, so it's 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 still it's still not the whole situation still isn't simple, you know. It's not uh, it's not just like so. It boils down to, you know, he was just wrong to do it. Um, it's not that way. But anyway, but, but you know the you know Carrie and Alyssa, your two, uh, your two observations kind of are sort of. I feel like helping me to kind of grope my way towards a a solution, maybe, or towards a reading of that. Alright, last one. I've kept you later than I've ever kept you before, because I I wanted to do the questions, because I asked for them, and I got really good ones. Last one. This is awesome from Michelle Parks. The name of cowslip has another dimension in addition to the one you mentioned in class. Cowslip is a polite term for cattle dung, and cowslips are so named, that is the plants, because of their tendency to be found sprouting in cow pies. I believe Silver is making a joke about this when, while the rabbits are discussing whether to go over to Cowslip's warren, he pretends to mistake Cowslip's name as Cowpat. This underlying meaning of Cowslip is apt in the context of the story. The sleek, well-fed Cowslip represents luxury to the band of homeless rabbits, but, like the delicious flower he's named after, this luxury is found growing on top of something foul. That's awesome! I just love the heck out of this observation. This is completely brilliant. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, and on that note, we will end for tonight. Uh, next time, we begin book the first half of book three, Afrifa. Um, uh, so uh, uh, I look forward to talking more uh, General Woundwort and uh, beginning to learn uh, more about Afrifa and this mysterious trick that Blackberry is apparently going to plan, whether he likes it or not. Um, Anyway, thank you, everybody, for your patience. Uh, I will try to be more efficient next time. Uh, I will see you guys next week, normal time. Hopefully we're now back to regular Wednesday schedule uh, without uh, we can hope for no further catastrophes. Thanks, everybody. Good night.